Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Philip McAleer, and I didn't realize we were starting the podcast just now. Okay. <laughs> so this is Anne McElhenney in Los Angeles and Philip McAleer in? Uh, Belgrade, uh, Serbia. Or someone said the, the other day, didn't realize you were in Siberia. Yeah, thank God you're not in Siberia, but I believe the weather isn't great there at the moment, right, Philip? No, no, it's a bit, it's a bit wet and miserable and dark and grey. Okay, well, it's week 82. That's one year and seven and a half months since the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown. And it's four and a half months since it was revealed, we found out, that Hunter Biden had used the N-word and the mainstream media in the United States and around yes. the world failed to report on it. Indeed, and of course, that is why I'm in Serbia is making the Hunter Biden movie, My Son Hunter. Um, so that will be given a full report on that later on and all the, all the, all the news that's fit to print from Serbia, and some that's not. Um, later on, we'll talk to Robert Bryce, our friend and author, the author of the Power Hungry podcast, about our bleak energy future and how it's absolutely got nothing to do with the Green Movement at all, no way, absolutely not. And okay. we have two lessons in how not to do journalism from the most trusted sources of how not to do journalism. Actually, there's a lot of those, though. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of competition, right? A lot of competition. And it's not what you know. It's, uh, it's, it's basically how you can screw the system. A lesson from Hunter Biden and his friends. And Crazy California, the latest from uh, Anne and Phelan versus the city of Santa Monica, an update on our lawsuit, um, or rather Phelan's lawsuit, or my lawsuit. Uh, Anne's, Anne's the victim. Yes. I should be in, yes, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the pro se, pro bono uh, attorney. I'm in, and, I'm in, yeah, exactly, exactly. And we have, believe it or not, the last part, which I was delighted to see Phelan in our show notes. Well, Phelan has found a recipe, sort of Phelan's favorite Serbian dish. And we're going to hear all about that. Yes, I think it's called caramelized raspberries. It's called, you know, it's called something very plain. It, 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 we were in a building with a, with a gymkhana, with an equestrian center. I said, don't you call that a gymkhana, an equestrian center? No, in Serbian, we call it an internal, internal equestrian uh, place for horses you know. tell us about belgrade tell us about serbia you've been there um a little over a week now how is yes things? well the weather has changed uh, it's got quite gray and miserable so that makes we're doing a lot of scouting uh we're here with robert davi the director and the production team we're doing some rewriting uh which i hope that means <clears throat> cutting really because you know uh, as robert did say when he first saw it, this is a very rich script hunter biden is a very rich life and you know, this movie's been funded by by the people who listen to this podcast, and you know there is a there is a finite budget, so we're trying to fit the budget into our ambitions. So we're we're looking at locations, uh, we're meeting department heads. So you know, there's a I don't I know if I mentioned last week. There's a sugar factory. It's just this amazing place where this eccentric politician guy bought a sugar factory and decided to have a couple of avant-garde theaters in it. And now he also rents it as film sets. And it's just all sorts of crazy. Look at that large white bull there. There's, there's, there was a submarine. There's a boat there. You know, there's an Avery. There's a birdcage, you know. So, I, and funny, when we were first out there, there was a movie, uh, another American movie was being shot there. And, it's, and uh, you know, you could see it. And I went up and talked to the producer. And she says, I said, what's the movie called? She goes, it's, it's a movie called Slaughterhouse. <laughs> I was going, okay. And she goes, it's a horror. And I was going, Really, I didn't think I didn't think it was a wrong. I didn't think it was a rom com. Yeah, know? with a title like that, yeah, nothing good can come yes. from anything with a title like that. Yeah, so so 
it's we're looking at locations you know there's lots of places that can pass as eastern europe and the ukraine where hunter did his dirty dealings um but i suppose we're, we're looking for places like the shadow marmont you know los angeles hotels los angeles apartments luckily there's uh some good places some people came back from america uh, with american ideas of houses and apartments so they built those so there are american educated architects working here so there are some houses that we can rent that look like american houses um but you know we're trying as i say we're trying to fit our budget into our ambitions i wasn't feeling too well there a few days ago and uh, robert robert davi the director turns to me says is your blood pressure okay and i says it's fine until you tell me uh, what you want to do for a certain scene, you know. Um, I, I'm just joking, but you know, obviously he's the director. He's 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 got a great image and a great vision, uh, and we just have to try and find places. And and you know, there may be a place that suits what he wants to do, but it would mean taking the comp the, the company on a trip across town and packing up and unpacking, and so we'd lose half a day. So we have to decide. Okay, this location is is perfect for her what we want to do here, but is it worth losing a half a day of shooting? And Robert is basically saying it's not. We need to get lots of shots. We need to get lots of footage. And uh, we need to try and stay in a few locations. Um, you know, yeah, there are, so there are plenty of places, you know, uh, a little bit past as, as the Ukraine. Fun fact about Belgrade, or perhaps not fun fact about Belgrade, depending mm -hmm. on, on where you're coming from. There are almost no strip bars in Belgrade. Oh, that's a terrible tragedy, Phil. I'm so I'm just Magda and I here are distraught to hear that. How yes. dreadful. Well, but there are some, weird. though, I hope. <laughs> there are some. You, and there, I just want to assure everyone I'm not cruising the strip bars. Obviously, Hunter Biden spent a significant amount of time in strip bars. And we remember when we lived in Romania, we lived in Romania for seven years. We were journalists there. There was a strip bar in every corner. You go to, in, in Bucharest, you go to the smallest town, there's a strip bar. Yeah. Uh, here, there are three in a country, in a capital city with a population of 1.2 million. There are three strip bars. I really like Belgrade, actually. It's it's a and Serbia. It's a it's you can smell. You know, these are it's a I say it's a city where men are men and women are women. You know, and there's no street crime. You know, almost. I mean, I said to the guys there, and everyone said no street crime, and they they said you can leave your bags, you can leave your computers in your car while we go. I'm saying, are you sure? He says, no, no, no. He says, one of the guys says, oh, yeah, the only time I've ever had my car broken into and the equipment stolen was when I was filming in San Francisco. <laughs> that sounds like a familiar a familiar story to us, by the way. Yeah, so the guy from Belgrade, you know, so, you know, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity and how dangerous it is, et cetera. But, you know, there's a lot of masculinity here and no street crime. So, you know, it's almost as if, you know, just a theory, the absence of masculinity in some of the more progressive Western cities allows the emergence of a predatory criminal class and a predatory male that was always there and, and is, feels empowered because there's no masculinity around. Just a thought, I don't know if it's true, but you can smell this freedom, this, this, this sense of, you know, we do what we want to do here in Belgrade. Um, you know, every bar and every cafe and every public space is non-smoking, that's the law. And every bar and every cafe when you can literally chew tobacco, right? Chewing smoke. It is like you are eating it. So you're basically saying that they have signs up saying no smoking and everyone is smoking. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there's signs on the tables and all that. Oh, and no. Away. And no one yeah, does anything uh, about it. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like reliving the 80s and 90s. I was saying like, I did something I hadn't done in a long time. 
I was in a bar or a restaurant and came home. And the next day I went along my coat and I couldn't wear it because of the smoke. So I had to put it out on the balcony to air it for a day. Oh, yeah. I have such clear memories of that. That used to be the thing. I mean, in fairness, uh, you know, I'm not I, obviously I'm not progressive, but I have to say the non-smoking indoors thing is a, is a good thing. I find it. Uh, it's very helpful, actually, because I do remember that you'd go in to meet yeah. someone in Ireland in a bar or in a, you know, say particularly a bar. And you literally couldn't see in the, you yes. know, you couldn't see very far because the smoke was so thick. Um, yeah. Very good film. So it's yeah, going, but it's going well. Everything's going well. Yeah. Also, very funny, um, you know, we know from our experience, a lot of expats can be very liberal. Uh, definitely, we remember, you know, progress was a lot of liberalism. Right? But I managed to find, I don't know what you'd call it, a nest of American Trump supporters here in Belgrade. So we, uh, I took, Robert and I, we had a lunch with a nest, a nest of U.S. Belgrade-based Trump supporters, a big, long, leisurely lunch on Saturday there, last Saturday from like, Fabulous. you know, all, all from, 1 p.m. to like 5 p.m. just listening to Robert Davi tell his wonderful stories and all the guys and you know what I'm and one of them I won't I won't say his name but one of them you know the reason I met these guys was because we knew someone in Romania when we lived there and this guy is Mexican American long hair with a beard in the film industry you know looks like a hippie looks like a liberal and he says you know he he and very interesting he um he was telling me how he, how he came to conservatism. He said he was kind of conservative growing up. Then he went off to college, became a liberal. And then he went off and traveled. And nothing, you know, he kind of still was liberal. But do you remember in, in Romania, this guy, uh, I'll call him John. John started hanging out with the actor Dennis Hopper. Became real I remember that, with yes. The actor. I went and stayed over at Dennis Hopper's South Carolina house, stayed at Dennis Hopper's that. Venice house. Yes. Became best buddies with Dennis Hopper. And of course, and Dennis Hopper, he says, converted him back to conservatism. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love yeah. those kind of I love those kind of stories. That's really great. Um, we're actually going to go right now to the interview that I did earlier with uh, Robert Bryce. Um, this I don't know, Philem, if you're seeing the same headlines as I am, but headlines across the world are uh, warning now of um, yes. a coming energy crisis and the headlines are very very shocking um, yep. and we, I thought no one better in the world to talk to about all of these issues than Robert Bryce we're going to go over that right now hello we are now joined by our dear friend Robert Bryce the commentator author documentary filmmaker and energy expert Robert Bryce's documentary juice how electricity explains the world is an absolute must watch. Um, we will put up, by the way, all the information about how to find it. Welcome, Robert. It's great to have you on again. Thanks again. And always happy to see you. Yeah. So I want to start. I don't know. I, we have a lot to talk about, Robert, but I want to start. Um, I think I, I think I sent you and I think you've been looking at this as well over the weekend. So our friend, the Greenie and New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Thomas Friedman, um, wrote, he wrote an article in 2015 under the headline, Germany, the green superpower. And he said, what the Germans have done in converting almost 30% of their electric grid to renewable energy from near zero in about 15 years has been a great contribution to the stability of our planet and its climate. And six years later, this last week, he has written under the headline, a scary energy winter is coming don't blame the Greens. And he goes on to talk about lots of stuff which you're going to want to tell me about anyway. What Did he get it wrong? What, what <laughs> happened here? 
Well, and I mean, well, first, let's be let's just lay out what's going on in Europe. The entire continent is in a crisis for not just electricity, but for the supplies of coal, supplies of natural gas. You see uh, utilities across the across the continent. In fact, one uh, utility in Germany shut down their coal fired power plant because they didn't have enough coal to, to fuel the plant. So the the it, well, we can call this energy realism and this energy venda that has been underway in Germany has resulted in staggering increases in electricity prices for German consumers and you know while Friedman was holding him up six years ago as the object to be copied what we're seeing today across Europe and particularly in Britain um, is a is a catastrophe where w- if we have a cold winter we could see thousands of people die and freeze to death because they don't have enough energy and more particularly enough natural gas and this is the result of this headlong rush toward renewables and the headlong rush away from hydrocarbons. It's, it's that simple. And there is no sugarcoating any part of it. I, I just was looking at one one final point here. The price of electricity in Spain has gone up sixfold in the last year, a sixfold increase, not 6%, not 60%, 600% increase. It's staggering. You're saying that if we have a cold winter in Europe, and let's just do Europe first, but I I also want to immediately uh, pivot back to the United States. But in Europe, you're saying if there's a cold winter in Europe, people will literally freeze to death. Can Can you just tell me more about that? Well, I think it's a real possibility. And we've seen, I'm not the only one saying this, but if there isn't enough gas for residential and for business heating, well, how else are people going to to heat their homes? They don't have enough natural gas on on the on uh, on the island of Britain to meet demand. So how are they going to stay alive if it's a very cold winter? And remember, and it's not just Europe; it's China and India as well. We're looking at a global electricity crisis today in in Beirut, in Afghanistan, in China, in India, in Britain, in Germany, in California. I mean, it's it's spanning the globe and. Uh, some of this is clear, and I, I just can't say it any more plainly than this. It is this headlong rush and this promotion of this all-renewable myth that we can run the world on renewable energy alone. Well, what we've seen in Europe is a weeks-long wind energy drought, and yes. that has forced the use of more natural gas, depleted natural gas supplies, and now we're looking at the knock-on effects, and it is it is damn scary is what it is. Do you know what's awful about this, Robert? You and I, we were talking about this, I, you know, like forever like ever since i've known you we've had this conversation over many pints of beer like we have been talking i mean i i hate the idea like but here we are like we're the wisest people in the world robert and apparently the world has been run by idiots one would have thought that angela merkel was like smarter than the average right like let's just take her for one example can you just tell people the completely insane thing that she did well, I mean, what, what Merkel has done is tied Germany's fortunes to the Russians. And and I think it's real politic for the Germans in saying, well, we need the lowest cost natural gas we can find, and the Russians can provide it via the Nord Stream pipeline. I'm assuming this is what you're talking about. But they, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, the Germans and the Russians don't have a good history. But <laughs> but what we're seeing is the 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 geopolitics of natural gas are, in, are, are changing the world. They're determining political alliances. And so Germany decided, well, we're going to tie up with with uh, with the Russians and the U.S., the Biden administration said, oh, sure, go ahead. I think probably because the Germans, I, I don't know this for a fact, my, it's pure speculation on my part, so the Germans told the Biden administration, you know, you can say whatever you want, but we're going forward with this pipeline. And so Vladimir Putin holds the, I mean, you made this point in Frack Nation that, that Putin and Russia control the flow of gas into Europe, and they're going to use that as a lever. And what we're seeing that is very clear now. 
Let's just stop for one moment and actually watch that part of Frack Nation where we highlighted this brewing problem with natural gas. James Dellingpole is a British journalist and author who has written extensively about energy issues. Shale gas is the miracle of the early 21st century. In terms of safety and environmental friendliness and economic efficiency, shale gas is about the best thing going in the world right now. And the only reason, the only reason that shale gas is, is not developing faster than it is, particularly in, in Europe, I mean, in America it's already great success, is because of these disingenuous objections which are being raised by the environmental movement, funded, I would suspect, by, for example, the Russians, who are big producers of natural gas. So, I mean, and it's interesting in that Friedman article that I referred to earlier, um, you know, basically we're now in a situation where Vladimir Putin is going to be controlling the fate of European countries and European countries. I mean, the situation, I think you described the same thing. European countries are going to come cap in hand to Vladimir Putin asking for help. Am I right about that? Well, I think it's already happened. I mean, and it was interesting the other day, um, Rosatom, the Russian nuclear agency, put something on Twitter, something to the effect of, oh, well, I guess it took high natural gas prices to the European countries to understand the value of nuclear. I mean, it was the ultimate troll. And what is Germany doing? They're closing their nuclear plants and making themselves more reliant on natural gas. If we could step back for just a second, and what's interesting to me is that I've had a guest on my podcast several times, um, uh, Meredith Angwin, and she's made this point. She calls it the fatal trifecta. Well, what is the fatal trifecta? It's electric grids that rely too much on imports, too much on natural gas, and too much on renewables. Well, what you, 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 you look at what she's saying there. What are the power plants that did the best? I, I'm in Texas. When, during the blackout, what plants did the best? The, the coal plants and the nuclear plants. Well, the coal plants and nuclear plants in the U.S. and in Europe are being phased out. So yes. they're making their grids intentionally, making their grids more fragile and more prone to failure and more prone to sky high prices. We're looking at energy of poverty across the European continent today that will last for months, if not years. Let's look at America for a moment here. So many parts, I, mean, I think when, and we talked about this before, and I just think it's worth looking back again. You actually did have people freeze to death in Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was, it should have been a great warning. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And more people could have died as you and our friend, and as our friend, the same, talked about the very same thing. Um, that it was five minutes, apparently we were five minutes away from from a complete blackout in the whole of Texas. In that's what, right. In Texas, by the way, let's remember where Texas is, one of the not Cal not richest. California. That's right. One of the richest energy you know, places on the planet Earth. Um, has Texas learned anything? And if it has, what are they doing to prepare for next winter? There's a lot going on, right, with the regulators now trying to figure out what to do next. And the legislature passed some measures, but they didn't pass the key measures which would uh, ensure resilience and reliability, in my view. They didn't go far enough. But let me back up for just a second, Ann, and get the, get the context for this, because this is key. So immediately, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Friedman's column in the New York Times saying, oh, well, don't blame renewables. Essentially, you know, oh, they're, they're, hold them harmless. They're not the ones to blame here. 
We saw the same exact spin happen after the blackouts in Texas in February. Mm-hmm. New York Times columnist and Paul Krugman, uh, Naomi Klein had a piece in the New York Times uh, attributing my piece in Forbes to Rick Perry, of all things. He made a big mistake <laughs> right in the lead. But anyway, but go ahead. The, but so why did the blackouts happen in Texas? We'll follow the money. It's the oldest. It's the oldest maxim in politics. Where was money spent on the Texas grid in the years before the blackout? was all spent on wind and solar. $66 billion was spent on wind and solar in the state of Texas in the years before the blackouts. And at 2 a.m. on February 15th, when my lights went out, all that spending was effectively worth nothing. All that, all that, all that you know, that solar and wind was worth zero. And, Robert, and yet, I mean, afterward, I mean, I mean saying, this can oh, don't happen, Robert, if this can happen in Texas, though. I mean, I, I find this, I am incredibly disturbed by the blackout in Texas. Um, and I think it got scant uh, attention, and I think the reason it's got scant attention is because it really highlights the problem of this uh, rush to renewables. Um, if this can happen in Texas, um, Robert, I mean, we're really all in trouble. I mean, what the hell is going on with with politics in Texas that allowed this to happen? A child died, by the way. One of the victims in this in this nightmare was a child who froze to death. What the hell's going on with politics in in, in Texas? Well, let me back up here. You know, the death toll ultimately was over 700. And and as you pointed out, the Texas grid was, I mean, this close. I mean, it's such a fraction close to complete meltdown. What could have happened is not just thousands of deaths, but maybe tens of thousands of deaths because it, the lights would have gone out in the middle of the night. The roads were impassable. It was snowing sideways and it was you know, and the temperatures were falling. So getting the grid back up and running again could have taken weeks well, in the, so in the meantime, you have in, in, a, in a bitter blizzard, you have the lights go out, you know, people, we could have seen thousands of people freeze to death. But what's at the root of all of this? And I think is fundamentally, it's, it's a government failure. And mm-hmm. you saw, and I had a guest on my podcast, Mark Nelson, if you uh, just last week, we talked about this. The British deregulated their electricity market in 1998. The, the deregulation took effect in Texas in 2002. Well, what happens now, almost exactly 20 years during the same span of a few months, both of them go into crisis. Why? Because the grid was not properly regulated. It was this idea, oh, we'll just leave it to the market. You know, well, that's great for the wind and solar guys because they can free ride on the existing thermal generators. They don't have to provide power when power is dear. And so what we've seen is this this um, distortion of the electricity markets in Britain, in, in Texas, in California, with this belief that the market is just going to cure it. No, damn it, no, that's not the way it works. You need the strong hand of government to make sure that the electric grid, which is our most important network, is resilient, reliable, and affordable. And it's all been disappeared. And now we're seeing the knock-on effects that are going to be deadly and incredibly expensive. I think there's one piece missing from that um, description you gave there, which is, sure. I mean, because you're, cause you're you're sort of saying that, you know, if the government was in charge, it would be, would be grand if they were regulating the market. The problem is, in a way, they are regulating the market because they're making the free market not free at all. They're actually favoring renewables. So Absolutely. people are trying to make a living. These uh, utility companies are trying to make a living. So they're going to choose to buy electricity. They're going to buy energy from the place that, where, you know, where they can make a buck or whatever. That's fair enough. They've got a bottom line. But governments are favoring renewables. You know, governments aren't saying to these utilities, you'd correct me, but I mean, you're the expert. I mean, governments should be saying to utilities, you, we, we, will, we will finish you. We will, we will destroy you if you are not able to constantly 
supply the people, no matter what. I don't even know, you know, we don't care how you do it. We just want you to know, and that's not what they're doing. They're not saying that. They're not giving a free hand. Is that not correct? Well, I, I, I see where you're going. And yes, I agree that 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 what what happened in Texas after the blackouts, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. No one's held accountable. Oh, well, the market didn't work. Well, it was because the way the government set up the market, it completely distorted the market to the favor of solar and wind. So uh, I've written about this many times and spoken about it many times. You look at the federal subsidies for solar and wind on a on a per unit of energy produced basis. Solar gets 250 times as much in federal tax incentives in the U.S. as the nuclear sector does. The wind energy sector, 160 times. So even in the wake of the blackouts here in ERCOT, what's being built in the state? All solar and all wind, not a single drop of thermal generation. But to bring this back to what's going on in Europe, I think that you know, this is this is an example of how this all renewable nonsense, and that's what it is, is being promoted by some of the most powerful environmental groups in America, some of the most powerful environmental groups in Europe. And you even hear the head of the EU Commission then promoting renewables in as the disaster is unfolding, saying, oh, well, the price of gas has gone up, but the price of renewables are, you know, they're still they're still stable. Well, that's fine. But they, what if the wind doesn't blow? Well, you can call any price you want. But it's it's a time of I, I have to say, of deception that the, the public has to get over and understand the criticality of the electric network and to keep uh, electricity affordable, resilient and reliable. And that's been lost in this push for decarbonization. I think this is I think that at the very heart of this, I think this is a very, very important point and one that I became painfully aware of when I started to study the energy sector and start making documentaries about it was, you know, people's complete ignorance about where the electricity comes from. Um, you know, I, I would say to our viewers and our listeners right now, um, do you have any idea how the lights are going on in your house. I mean, people know the lights go on, but I would say most of the people listening, now our, our viewers and listeners are more educated than the average, but a lot of people do not know what's powering their house, what's powering their power shower. You know, is it coal? Is it natural gas? Is it renewables? And people, I would say people in California, et cetera, would be quite surprised at the mix. Um, you know, they think that, you know, they have this foolish idea that electricity is clean, you know, Ele you know, that it's just, oh, it's very clean. You know, I've got an electric car. Yeah, what, where's the electricity coming from? What, you know, I'd love you to speak to that issue just for a sure. moment, the issue of people's complete ignorance. And I don't mean it in an insulting way, yeah. but there seems to be an incredible ignorance on, in most people on the energy issue and specifically electricity. There's no doubt. And and part of that is that electricity systems are complicated. I mean, it's an, the, the electric grid is a very complex system and you have thousands upon thousands of different generation units and, and toasters and lights and microphones all, all connected to it. So, you know, generally, in general, I say this with no fear of contradiction, the public is scientifically illiterate and they're innumerate. And so they think, oh, well, renewables has got to be good. Well, when you do it at scale, you can harm the integrity and reliability of the electric grid. And that's what we've seen. And, you know, you mentioned California. I mean, I've been following, I live in Texas and I'm not, you know, I'm from Oklahoma. I'm not just bashing California, but you want a case study and what not to do. Look at what's going on in California. The electricity rates are skyrocketing and they're following the German model. I mean, it's as though they're lemmings when it comes to these energy policies. And, oh, well, we're going to do what the Germans and Europeans were. And we see that in California where you have some of the most, uh, the highest electricity, some of the highest electricity prices in the continental U.S. And just in the last few weeks, what has happened? The, they added... 150 megawatts of new 
gas-fired generation. Oh, well, I thought you were decarbonizing. Oh, and you're going to close your last nuclear plant, the Diablo Canyon plant, um, in 20, beginning in 2024. That's 10% of all the electricity produced in the state, and it's zero carbon, and they're going to close it anyway. Why? Because groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, which, by the way, mm -hmm. got $100 million from Jeff Bezos, have been pushing for this for years. And one final point, I just was looking at some data from uh, the California uh, Independent System Operator. In the last year alone, in the, the Bay Area, the number of diesel-fired gensets in that region went up 22% in one year. So follow the money. Where are people investing? They're looking at the grid and seeing it's less reliable, so they're adding their own generators. And, yes. and it's, this it's, is happening across it's the country. It's interesting that you say that just on a personal note, actually, by the way, because Ireland, I mean, is a case study in idiocy. I mean, it's really unbelievable what's happening there. And and we're becoming becoming really really we have a home there and we spend time there in the winter sometime in the winter and sometime in the summer, and we're becoming painfully aware of this this unreliable unreliability of the grid and the really they're already saying it. the the guy in charge of energy um, in Ireland uh, Eamon Ryan is telling people to prepare for blackouts you know he's saying um, I mean the idea that he's in charge of the grid is extremely scary but he's basically saying yeah prepare for blackouts so people everyone's out there buying generators now I mean who you know we're going way backwards here everyone is buying generators so that we don't freeze to death and I don't know if I mentioned this to you and I don't know if you know this but another crazy thing in Ireland if you build a new house in Ireland you're not allowed to have a fireplace yeah, well, this is part of the anti, the you know, the anti-hydrocarbon, anti-solid fuel push that the re, that the all renewable crowd is pushing. I mean, it's it's not just bad policy, Anne. It's dangerous policy. I mean, when are we these were, people? I mean, you know, this is going to sound like a really strange question, but I mean, are the people pushing renewables? I mean, you know, not to be insulting or anything, are they that stupid? Are they that stupid that they would put? tens of thousands of people's lives in danger are they are they that ideologically blind and that innumerate and illiterate about science that they would do this i'll answer it this way and i, I wrote a piece that was published in forbes just a few days ago about the sierra club and i i, I and and this is related but I, that there uh, the headline was here's the list of 317 uh communities that have rejected wind energy that the sierra club doesn't want you to see and in there, I talk about the Sierra Club. And by the way, that number is now over 320 in the US. This idea, oh, we'll do all this renewables. It's exactly the same in Britain, exactly the same in Germany, France. The people in rural, in the rural areas and the countryside are saying, we don't want your stupid wind turbines. You can take your wind turbines and put them where the sun doesn't shine and mm -hmm. maybe next to your solar panels. But all <laughs> across the country, wind and large wind and solar projects are being rejected in the this summer alone in montana in pennsylvania and nevada very large solar projects were rejected by local communities oh i'm this really happy to hear that that's a great piece we'll you'll send us a link for that and we'll put that up in the show notes that's an incredibly interesting story robert and people have you know i really like that so you're so the people are smart you know the well, leaders the people are the smart leaders, but i'll just finish this yes. about your question about why are these groups pushing it well I was talking to this guy who was a prominent employee of the Sierra Club, and I sent him my study that I published in April, delineating all of these rejections of the spreadsheet with all the URLs here. You can check the news link yourself. This is the documentation. Never replied. Send it again. No reply. Huh. But he said something interesting, and this is the point that I was getting to. These groups are they're campaigning organizations. They're campaigners, and they're all their only focus is the campaign. Did we did we achieve the goal of, of banning natural gas in homes in California? Well, yes, you do, you've done a pretty good job. You already got 50 or so, some of the richest communities in California, banning the use of natural gas. In Ireland, oh, banning the use of, of stoves in homes, banning, you know, making them all electric. 
they don't have to run anything. All they have to do is do the next campaign because then they get another check from Jeff Bezos. Oh, our campaign was successful. So yeah. they don't give a thin God about running things or managing things. They're, com they're just campaigners and that's all they are. And therein lies the critical difference because this making the energy network, energy and power networks function and make them affordable, resilient and reliable is damn hard. And anything yes, that yes. does, they get they get degraded. Oh, it's just a little bit. Oh, it's just a little bit. And we're going to save the climate. It's just a little bit. Well, that leads to ruin over time. And that's what we're starting to see. And the, the bills are going to be just enormous. I mean, as I said, in Spain, in one year, the price of electricity has gone up 600%. It's staggering. I've said, yeah, I've been looking at those numbers about energy prices all over, all over the globe, by the way. And everything is everything is at a premium. The prices have gone completely nuts. Just to stick stick just with the, the, the question of Texas and in, in more in general in the United States, can you point me to any politicians in the United States who are talking about this and talking about this with the urgency that is necessary and the urgency that we're hearing in your voice. Who else is talking about this? What politicians are? <laughs> I, I wish I could tell you, Anne. I, you know, I think well, there that, are a few That's really that, disappointing, few, by the way, Robert. You're in Texas. Texas politicians aren't talking about this continuously. That's scary. I think some of them are. I think, you know, John Barrasso is the ranking member of the, the Senate Energy Committee. I think he, you know, there's some clear-eyed analysts and they're all on the Republican side. And unfortunately, what, what I see too Despite what we've seen and the ongoing blackouts in California, the, the deadly blackout here in Texas and these ongoing catastrophes in Europe, it hasn't changed the rhetoric. I mean, whether from the EU or from Bernie Sanders or, you know, some of the ranking Democrats on, on Capitol Hill are saying, oh, still, we got to, you know, push renewables, renewables. Look at what is happening. Are you not paying attention? I mean, if you were, you would really be changing your tune. And that's the part that I think is deeply dangerous is that the reality is not affecting the rhetoric. And therein yeah. lies real, really a real problem because what we're seeing is overinvestment in renewables and underinvestment in hydrocarbons. And I mean, truly, now some of these are knock on effects from COVID, no doubt about it. But just look at hydrocarbons in particular. Let's look at natural gas. We talked about it earlier as a heating fuel and how critical that's going to be this summer or this winter, rather, forgive me. Mm -hmm. But the issue also is natural gas for petrochemical production and fertilizer production. The natural gas is critical for the is, is one of the main few, uh, sources of energy for producing uh, ammonium based fertilizers. Well, if farmers don't have enough fertilizer to grow their crops, then what happens? Well, you don't produce enough food. So we're going to see inflationary effects throughout the economy because of this headlong rush through ESG and oh, hydrocarbons are bad, climate change. Well, it's a it's a misunderstanding of the staggering uh, uh, volume of hydrocarbons that we consume and how they touch nearly every aspect of our lives. And that's the critical point. And those chickens, unfortunately, are becoming home to roost. And it's going to be an extremely expensive lesson for for consumers all around the world. It's uh, yeah, it's very scary. I'm looking at these headlines and it's very scary. And the piece. So the piece you wrote, you just wrote a piece recently for Forbes. And I want to quote a couple of pieces back to you and make a couple of comments there. So in this last piece in Forbes, and we'll put it up in the notes, you said, you know, the iron lady, sorry, the iron law, sorry, the iron law of electricity, which says people, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. I would I would put to that. What of countries that have totally drunk, countries and states that have run, that have drunk the Kool-Aid? Well, it's Germany and Britain are the obvious ones. I mean, imagine where Britain would be today if they had embraced hydraulic fracturing, you know, a decade ago. 
Now, Britain has sizable shale resources yes. that they could be tapping to produce their own natural gas. They didn't do it. And and there was this this belief, and it's same in Germany. Oh well, we'll do it with renewables. Well, what happened? What happens when the wind doesn't blow in the North Sea? And that's what we've seen over the over the past past month or so, a record low uh, wind activity in the North Sea. You know, and it, it destroys this lie and call it what it is a lie by the renew, all renewable crowd. Oh well, the wind is always blowing somewhere. Well, hey, guess what? That's not true. And when you, it doesn't blow and you put all this money into it, it you, the knock-on effects become just disastrous. But I think, you know, just to zoom out just a second, and because we talked about Europe and, and, and the U.S., in India, you're, you, something like half of the thermal power stations in 70% of the electricity in India, 70% in China, is produced from, from coal. Well, in India, something like half of the, the coal stations in the country are now effectively out of coal on hand. So you have a country of 1.4 billion people that's going to be running short of electricity and have rolling blackouts potentially for weeks, if not months. This, is going, to, this is going to affect the global economy for lack of production, manufacturing, people put out of work because there's no electricity. This is, it's damn scary is what it is. What happened to coal? Where did, for, I'm just thinking, thinking on the China front because China, you know, for many, many years certainly paid lip service to the global warming hysteria and the anti-fossil fuel thing. But have, have, they, have they got involved in this then? And how have they got themselves in this situation with the coal? Well, I think some of it is that their power demand skyrocketed after COVID, you know, the, the lockdowns slowed, you know, went slowed. So they saw double digit increases in electricity demand and the same occurred in India as well. So you have these massive increases in demand for power um, and they're burning coal to produce it. But then they start running short of coal in part because their mines weren't producing as much during COVID. And then you've got transportation bottlenecks from the rail lines, et cetera. So it exposes the just the delicate and interrelated nature of the energy and power networks and how they have to function together. And so it's deeply unfortunate, but these knock-on effects are we're going to see an inflationary cycle because of the increased cost of electricity that's going to translate into higher costs for aluminum, for, you know, canned beer, for, you know, every, you know, wheat, everything. All of this is going to be touched by this um, this headlong rush and, and ESG to have a condemnation of hydrocarbons and embrace of renewables. Well, it's going to come with a very high cost. And, you know, people like BlackRock and Larry Fink and, oh, well, you know, climate change. Look, climate change is a concern. It's not the only concern. Mm -hmm. um, how are the greenies um, spinning this crisis? Well, it's the same that they did after the Texas blackouts. Well, we just need more renewables. The problem is, oh, we just need more renewables. Well, but again, this beggars the, the idea. Well, where are you going to make this stuff happen? Where mm -hmm. are you going to put it? Because you can't you can't build it. You can't build wind turbines in California. That's clear. I've written about that and mentioned it in the iron law in the piece that I had in Forbes on the Sierra Club. You can't build them in New York State. In some of the most democratic states in America, you can't build large wind projects. So this idea, I mean, it's, they're just reverting to the same, you know, baloney claims that, oh, we'll just do it all with renewables. But it doesn't, it just ignores the importance of affordability. And it ignores the, the impact that all of this is having on the low and middle income consumers. And they're going to be the ones that take it in the shorts, not those wealthy people living in San Francisco and doing their campaigns. That doesn't affect them. They're, they're oh, like, we achieved the campaign, so all is good. It's it's very very worrying, and as you say, I mean, it's you know, poorer countries and poorer communities are going to be you know disproportionately affected by this. Um, you've another one of the other laws you have that you talk about in the Forbes pieces. You says, um, I've also stated, you say, um, 
when forced to choose between dirty electricity and no electricity, people will choose dirty electricity every time. I would make a caveat to that, um, that except for in idiotic places like the place, unfortunately, where I'm living, where they won't choose dirty electricity here, even if we die. Am I not right about that? I, I have to go back to the class issue, and because, you know, the, the people that can afford backup generators, I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago in which I talked about the sales of Generac. Generac sales are, are up doubled, the stock price is up fourfold. Why? Because people are seeing the lack of reliability in their electric grid. And where are Generac's most, uh, uh, most uh, promising markets? California and Texas. Right? Oh my so, God. And, and who buys the Generacs? Well, it's it, the household, average household income for the Generac consumer is $130,000. That's two times the national median household income. Oh my God, that's a fabulous factoid. <laughs> so, so you have this bifurcation of the market where the wealthy are not going to be hurt as badly, not nearly as badly by blackouts. They're not going to be hurt as badly by rising prices. They're going to be able to absorb it. They're going to have a Generac. They're going to have a Tesla Powerwall. But I was in Louisiana, uh, Tyson Culver, my colleague and I are working on another documentary. We drove over to, to Southern Louisiana. What are people there doing? They're, they're carrying those five gallon gas cans. Those are, those are Tesla power walls for poor people. And they're running, they're running small generators to fuel, to, 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 to power their, their refrigerator, to power their air conditioning unit. And that's how they're scraping by when the lights go out. And that's just the reality. And it's all about class. It's always about class, but particularly when it comes to energy, this is, this is the issue that I care about. And I'm going to be talking about for a long time to come. Yeah, and I hope we'll be talking to you about it. Um, one other issue I just wanted to touch on before we finish on, on energy, and I have another thing I want to talk to you sure. about before we finish. Um, your piece, your Forbes piece, um, speaks about nuclear. And I know that your, your guest um, on your last, uh, on the podcast, and we'll put up the links to your podcast. We highly recommend um, Robert's po podcast. If you want to know anything about energy, this is the guy, to, this is the guy you want to talk to. Um, and, and you talk about nuclear. Um, and I have a sort of a nuanced question with, for you on that um so nuclear you know really there's not much there's not much happening in the united states about nuclear there's not much happening with nuclear almost anywhere and i would ascribe a lot of the um failure for ramping up nuclear on a film a movie two movies back in the day silkwood china syndrome and more, more recently chernobyl have been very very powerful tools to the public to, to basically give a very clear message, nuclear power will kill us all and we'll all die horrible, slow, painful deaths. Right. What, are, what, are, what is the nuclear industry doing to answer all that? I mean, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is a huge issue, and it's 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 not it funny at all. It, it, unfortunately, it is. and 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 you know, the frankly, the the nuclear industry in the U.S. is struggling mightily, and and coal and fire and and nuclear plants are being shuttered. One of the travesties, the great travesties of 2020, was the closure of the Indian Point nuclear plant in Buchanan, New York, which we featured in our film Juice. I went there uh, three years ago. It was a mar it's a marvel, was a marvel of technology. Um, from one square kilometer, they were producing 25% of all the electricity used in the city of New York. I mean, just wow. incredible example of power density. And yet wow. they closed it. Why? Because the Natural Resources Defense Council lobbied for it and Governor Andrew Cuomo cheered it on. Oh, well, we'll just replace it all with renewables. And, they, they, and what happened? Instead, they replaced the, that output with gas-fired generation. 
But <clears throat> there's this this fear that the, the, the left has used for decades about nuclear. They've conflated it with nuclear weaponry repeatedly. And 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 also this they throw out continually this canard. Oh, we don't need nuclear. We can do it all with renewables. So the nuclear industry in the U.S. is stuck. I mean, let's be clear. They're they're stuck. And it, it, Mark Nelson and some of his colleagues, Matty Cherwinski at a, uh, the campaign for a green nuclear deal, they saved the uh, prevented the closure of two nuclear plants in Illinois, the Byron and Dresden plants, which was a great, great accomplishment for them. Uh, but we're still facing facing the closure of, of Diablo Canyon. There are a lot of new nuclear technologies that are being developed on small modular reactors, high temperature reactors, salt, molten salt, thorium, et cetera. All of them show promise, but they're a decade or more away from deployment at scale. And therein lies one of the big problems. So as I say at the end of the piece on the iron law of electricity, over the next decade or so, we don't have a choice. The, to meet electricity demand, we're going to have to use coal, oil, and natural gas, and a lot of it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, as I said, we could talk to you forever. I want to segue, just do a very quick segue sure. um, away from, because we could talk about energy forever. So I think I mentioned to you in my last correspondence, Robert, that yes, Phil and I were thinking we might move to Austin. Why should people move to Austin? Should no, should no, we no, move no, to no, Austin? No, 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 stay away, everyone. Don't come. No, we're full. <laughs> what what uh, what's life like in Austin, Texas? Well, I, you know, I've lived here for 36 years. I love it here, obviously. Um, and you know, I'm lucky we bought our house 20 years ago. But I mean, the price of housing is skyrocketing because you know Tesla announced they're moving their headquarters here. Um, numerous other tech firms are moving their headquarters here. I mean, it's a great city, you know, uh, I, I love it here. I went out and heard live music last night, had a great time, went bird watching yesterday. You know, I love it here. So, uh, but I mean, the city has changed dramatically in the last 10 years or so. A lot of young people moving here and I understand why, um, you know, no income tax, um, you know, relatively low regulatory burden. And, and there, my son was selling shoes on, on South Congress until a few weeks ago. He said, I, I said, well, who are your customers? He said, they're all from California or Dallas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And what's the property? What's the property tax there? They're high. I mean, we don't have a state income tax, so you pay a lot in property taxes. Um, but they're limited to increase, I think, 10% a year. So I mean, you know, it's not quite, you know, the same. But they in increase every year by 10% the property that is tax the limit, they're limited to no more than 10%. But, oh my uh, God. but the price of the, the cost of living here is going up and going up dramatically, because mm. that the cost of housing has gone up so dramatically, I think in, in our neighborhood, not bragging, but last year alone, our uh, I think the value of prices, ho housing prices in our neighborhood here in South Austin went up 30 or 40% in one year. Yes. So it's it's a it's a very uh, very hot market, and um, so if you're coming, uh, you know, shop well because uh, the, the demand is incredible because so many people are leaving California. Yeah, yeah, I think there's going to be. I think we talked. I was talking to Phelan about it recently. He was saying, you know, America is becoming increasingly balkanized, and you know, maybe that's a good thing, right? Maybe that's a kind of a good thing. Um, he quotes Mark Stein, you know, Mark Stein said, um, you know, you know, this line diversity is our strength. And he said, it's exactly the opposite, actually. <laughs> the lack of diversity is our strength. You know, when we all agree on certain things, on certain principles about how to live and how to behave properly, things do well. But if you bring in people who think very, very differently um, and mess and, 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 and have very bad ideas, things don't go very well but um anyway we'll see we are checking out austin we are checking out some other places and we asked our our, our viewers and listeners to send us um, their suggestions of where we should leave because california has really gavin newsom now with uh, getting this sort of second booster mandate um is just um 
he's like he's just like a child with a toy now he's just getting you know anything he wants he's just doing it well, the crazier the, the better front, I, I just you know I, I can't answer to all those issues but i'm on the energy front the, the situation in california is just getting worse and worse and worse and the electricity prices there are going to continue up i mean the the california public utility commission issued a report not long ago estimating that uh southern cal or no san diego gas and electric their rates are going to go up another 30, 40 or 50% over this decade so i mean it, it, the cost of living there is extraordinarily high the cost of housing is extraordinarily high and in a, in a state where you have the highest poverty rate in america i mean it's just a, an incredible confluence of interests and a large and a lot of it being pushed by the same groups that we've been talking about the sierra club the natural resource defense council limiting growth limiting the ability of people to own homes and it's a it's a very uh, it's a it's a bad outcome and it's a bad outcome particularly for the latinos in california i've written about that a lot as well they're suing the state over these policies but um it's regressive and uh, and and just not fair and yeah. uh, the state is going to is going to have to reckon with this for decades to come yeah we'll be talking to you again robert um as we get closer to the winter and particularly the winter in europe uh, and watching what happens there and obviously watching what happens in texas but thank you so much for your time today it's always great to talk to you never enough time robert but um we will be checking in more regularly as time goes on and maybe see you in austin yeah thanks so much thanks a million Anne. what what an incredible um i mean i could have talked to robert forever one thing i want to do right now and really highly recommend to everyone is robert's um robert's work is very very educational and i'm thinking of a lot of parents out there who are now homeschooling children you will do you would do a lot worse than to do this one thing with your kids right now so on roku and we'll put the link up in our show notes robert's last documentary which is called juice how electricity explains the world i cannot possibly recommend it enough I think one of the reasons, um, and I think I didn't really get into it uh, during the interview with Robert, but one of the reasons I think we're in the trouble that we're in is people are so illiterate about energy issues. And I know that because I was that person until I started working and on environment, the documentaries that Phelan and I have made on electricity and about, about environmentalism, about um, the global climate you know, um, hysteria and all of that. And you start to realize the importance of energy, the importance of electricity, and where, where is the power coming to keep the lights on? So please go right now and make it your business to bring your family together and to bring your friends together and watch Robert's um, documentary. And by the way, as, yeah. he as he mentioned at the very end of, the of, of our piece, he is working on a new documentary, which I imagine will be wonderful. I, I, and just on a related note, I went to the uh, Nikolai Tesla Museum here in Belgrade. Uh, yesterday, in fact, and uh, I, this is they're they're trying to imply that Tesla was some kind of environmentalist. You know, it's definitely like you know, and he did write an article about the problems with unlimited energy, right? But I want as a book, it's a pamphlet, it's a long pamphlet, and I bought it. I'm I'm and I'm just started reading it, but I suspect it's not what they said it was, you know. And uh, there was a quote of his which they, I think they're trying to. Uh, attached to you know consumerism or, or make it anti-consumerist uh, but i think it's anti-fascist so i think the piece is anti-fascist rather than anti-people but let, let me have a look at that but you know they're, they're definitely the energy is um is under threat across the world um the greens are getting their wish the sale of generators has gone like completely through the roof and what's extraordinary is basically he made the point that when when push comes to shove, 
people need energy and they'll get it from wherever they can get it, including what's known as dirty sources, you know, including um, diesel. So he said companies that produce these generators. So the rich and the elite who bring in these awful rules and regulations and have us uh-huh. in this incredible poverty, energy poverty that have that have us in this situation where we're really vulnerable and the lights are going to go out. Those same people. When the lights go out, they're really wealthy. They're just going to buy a diesel-powered generator and keep the lights on yes, and the heat on in their own course. house. And I know Phelan and I have had this conversation. We have a little home in Ireland, and we go there every now and again, and we go there sometimes in the winter. And we we are actually literally looking at what kind of generator can we afford to buy because this is the thing that people are doing. And I was talking well, to, to a friend in Ireland this weekend and saying to, saying to her, you know, and she had mentioned that she had just driven past somewhere and she saw coal. And I said to her, get them to fill the car up. Don't worry about how you're going to get it out of the car. Get them to fill the car up with coal, but tell them. And I remember my father was a coal merchant back in the day. So I know a little bit about this. Get the Polish coal. And Magda was laughing today when I was saying that. But get the Polish coal, he always said, because it had. And I'm trying to remember the measure. Maybe Magda will find it for me there on the interwebs. But there's a measurement on coal. And that measurement is the one that is telling you how much heat the coal gives out. Uh-huh. The difference between coal and, and wood, and obviously we all love burning wood. I love to burn wood, but it goes like just that, 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 that. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Coal, however, gives out extraordinary heat and it stays for a long time. And it's a yeah. fabulous source of heat. And I said that when we get to Ireland, Phelan, if we go, we're going there in the winter, the Christmas time, that we will fill up um, every possible part of that house that we have with coal store coal because this Mm -hmm. is coming to a town near you and don't get yourself caught without some kind of power source that you control and that no one can turn off um that you can control and try but it's but it's very frightening Um, i mean i think i think we're going to mention this at the end i mean gavin newsom is is in the middle of banning uh generators powered by uh dirty you can only have generators powered by electricity Oh yeah, yeah. So, but again, he's stupid enough. I... But again, and I, I mentioned this in my, when I was talking to Robert. Again, he's stupid enough to think that electricity is clean. You know, the question is what's powering the electricity, and we know yeah. that here in California, you know, these so-called dirty fuels are what's keeping everything going, including yeah. the electric cars. By the way, and you know, this is the kind of exercise people should be forced. And this is why I say parents should watch. Uh, the documentary and have the conversation with their children about energy, about the importance of energy and what happens when the lights go out. And we know now, unfortunately, we have a Petri dish because we saw what happened in Texas this past winter when people died. Um, Robert said the the estimate now is 700, including children. Um, Wow. So we're moving on from that because one of the reasons, yes. of course, that this has all happened is because journalists is, journalism is so uh, dishonest. But very funny, you know, I mean, we've done this. I think we, I don't know, we should, this is nearly a feature now at this point, Film is doing kind of journalism 101, how not to yes. do journalism. And there was, the, the, there's so many very powerful examples. And we have two this week, one from the New York mm-hmm. Times and one from the Washington Post. And the one from the New York Times is just magnificent. And the woman in the New York Times, she's a porva. Mandavilli, looking at her photograph, everyone looking at her photograph there, she is a reporter focusing on science and global health. She is the 2019 winner of the Victor Cohen Prize for Excellence in Medical Science Reporting. So this little lady, Apurova, had to issue um, a correction in the New York Times. And the correction in the New York Times basically is a correction on every last thing she said in the article. This woman who won a prize for excellence. 
So one of the things in the central error, but it, it's one of many, but I suppose the most egregious is that she had reported that 900,000 children had been hospitalized with COVID um, during the pandemic. The actual figure is 63,000, uh -huh. um, <laughs> right? And I mean, you're a journalist, Phelan, I'm a journalist. Um, you know, when you, I mean, uh, you know, and we haven't won a well, prize, I mean, Phelan, but you know, maybe that's, maybe almost that's something that we should boast about. Because yeah. the most, I mean, the one thing that you'd always check in your article, like you would check over and over again, would be a statistic, particularly a number or a statistic that is so dramatic, almost yes. a million children hospitalized in a country with about 300 yes. million people living in it. This is a yes. huge number. But you know what happened here? And I know you explained this to me a lot, Phelan, but, you know, basically, if you love a story so much, the last thing you'd ever want to do is fact check it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it just also, by the way, yeah, you mean, I mean, I'm looking at that correction now. It's going to get to the stage where the correction is bigger than the original article. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, by the way, even that 60 whatever thousand children. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I question that, too. Yes. I, I would question that. But I also would say, well, can you tell us how many children are hospitalized during a, a bad flu season or during a good flu season? Correct. Context. And I don't know how many it is. I yeah. don't know how many it is. But yeah. the fact that they don't tell you how many it is means they know how many it is and it possibly is ruins more the story it ruins the story it ruins the panic porn it ruins yes. ruins the doom scrolling it ruins the COVID's going to get us in the end and that you need to now have your child your baby vaccinated and all the rest of it like literally there are I don't know, there's 10 errors, I think, in it. Literally, I think she got nothing right, you know. You know, an earlier version of this article incorrectly described actions taken by regulators in Sweden and Denmark, you know, was one of the things. Then there was the 63,000 people. It also, in addition, the article misstated the timing of an FDA meeting. Like, it's on and on and on and on and on. And this was a woman who won a prize for excellence. Yeah. But then, you know, quickly segueing from that one, just not to even spend too much time on it, it's just hysterical. The Washington Post, the very same, the very same yeah. again. And yeah. it's one of those things again, where they're married to the narrative. They love the narrative. So the narrative was, and people will remember this Kenosha police officer um, shooting. So Jacob Blake, yeah. unarmed, 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 you know, no charges to filed against Kenosha police officer. Now, oh, sorry. And now they've had to issue, um, they've had to issue an apology with the Washington Post. So when the story was originally reported, the original story was unarmed man, unarmed man, shot by the police, unarmed man, unarmed man. Now, it's interesting, Phelan, and I know you worked in a, a, you know, in a war zone, right? So people got yeah. shot, terrible things happened to them. And you would go and try and find, get to the bottom of what exactly had happened. And I can imagine, Phelan, I'm going to put a scenario to you and to ask you how you would have behaved. So I imagine when you were in Belfast and somebody got shot or whatever, you would have gone somewhere and you'd have said, you might, you know, I, I, along with, you'd have started maybe by talking to the family, maybe the family of the guy who had died. Maybe yeah. You'd have said, what happened here? And perhaps let's imagine that the family said to you, he was, he was completely, he was unarmed. He was walking. I mean, he just got shot out of the blue. What would you have done then, Phelan? Would you have just gone, you'd have gone straight back. Would you Would you go straight back to the newsroom, Phelan, and write that up then, would you? No, no, actually, what you go and do is you go and ask eyewitnesses who were there. Uh, you ask the police who shot them. And you go, but, you know, and you ask local people. And, uh, but you, I mean, this idea of taking the family's word for anything, right? I mean, you know, they are the world's most unreliable witnesses. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Yeah, it's yes. like, 
yes. You know, of course you're an unreliable witness. Your child has just been shot. Like, I mean, you're not thinking straight. And and you, if you weren't there, you're doubly not reliable, right? So, you know, obviously what you say is relevant for emotion. You can talk a little bit about your child, but every mother thinks their child is 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 a saint, you know. So, but then there are independent sources you can verify what what was the truth about this person. But you would never take the word of a family and just run with it. Well, Washington Post film, I think, what is their motto? Democracy dies in the dark. Is that them? Yes. Or, yes. yes. Democracy dies in the dark. Well, you know, I don't know about democracy dying in the dark, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing we do know for sure about the Washington Post: they're despicable and useless, incompetent journalists. And here's how we know. They went ahead, they talked to the family of the man who had been shot, and they went ahead and they tweeted out, unarmed man. Yeah, but-, but And Anne, by the way, Anne, how incendiary is that? Hold on, hold on, hold on, yeah. So, but this, is, this has been out for years now that he was armed, that he had a knife. This is not, you know, it's not like that the, they're, you know, at the time, and there's even footage of him with the knife. So, the, the, okay, the family said he was unarmed, according to the journalist, and they, and they tweeted that out. But there's a thing, as I say, there's a thing that top secret journalists, that we top secret journalists can use, and it's a thing called Google. Hmm. And yes. you can actually Google his name and find that there's a picture of him with a knife and him refusing to put the knife down, and then him reaching into a car. Uh, and that's when cops get really nervous when armed people who refuse to put a knife down reach into a car. That's when they are going for a gun. And, and there's many examples of that. So that's that's the state of journalism now uh, yeah. in America. Yeah, there you go. So um, obviously, Phil, you're there in Belgrade. You're making a movie about Hunter Biden. And we have some news about Hunter Biden. Um, you know, it's really not what you know, right? In this life, it seems to be it's not what you know, but it's who you know and who you well, are. Tell, tell me this story. Uh, you're over there. Tell me this, this story. This is fabulous. And this is from the Daily Mail. And I just give you the headline here. The art of the COVID deal. The gallery selling Hunter Biden's paintings saw their federal COVID-19 loan increase from $150,000 to $500,000 after Hunter Biden's father took office. So I'm basically... Isn't that fabulous? So the public records show that the George Burge Gallery in Soho, we've mentioned the George Burge um, Gallery before, because obviously that's where the, the home of the Hunter Biden art um, uh, work is, is, is located. So public records show that the George Burge Gallery in Soho, New York, was granted a 150,000 COVID-19 disaster loan a year ago, last year, last year, so 2020. Um, however, six months after um, Joe Biden took office. So in 2021, this figure at the 120, which was what they got the previous year, was amended, revised, and the company was awarded 350,000 more. So coming to a grand total of $500,000 in their, in, their, um, in their disaster relief. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think the George Burge Art Gallery made a very, you know, made some smart moves yeah. there. They may, not and, and great, they may not be a great assessor of great art, but yes. maybe they're a great assessor of great associates or great people to yes. be associated with, right? They know who to be associated with. Yeah, and Hunter, of course, has had his exhibition in LA and uh, the great and the good and the not so good were there. Um, 
uh, one per, you know, Eric Garcetti was there, who's now going off to be the ambassador to India Correct. and a donor to the Joe, Joe Biden campaign. I mean, this thing stinks to high heaven. Oh, and by um, the way, just a little detail, Phil, about the exhibition they had here. I think you probably know this, but they had they did have the exhibition in here. And people, I think, already know this, that 70, that three prints were sold. Prints, mind you, prints. prints were sold for $75,000. I mean, this is this is re- this is Prince. really ghastly. However, the other thing just to mention just while we're while we're there was it was an indoor event in the city of Los Angeles and no yes. one wore a mask in contravention of all of the city mandates. But there's the Hunter without though, his mask. There's there's Hunter without his mask and he doesn't look like he's using drugs at all in that picture. Right. As I was as I was saying, you know, that we're we're trying to make our budget fit our imagination. So, you know, I know people have been very generous, but please keep giving. Uh, and, and if you haven't given, please give. We're here. We're spending money. We, this, it's a very, very professional team. They're all very young and very enthusiastic. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some of them may not agree with the subject matter, but there's no sense of, of that. It's just how can we make the, this the best piece of art? There is, and you know, the one of the ways we can do that is 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 to spend more money. Is to have, you know, at the moment, you know, I'm saying to Robert, look, if you want that big set piece, then we're going to have to sacrifice something else. And he's very good. He he, he knows that, and he's happy to. Funny, he's happy to focus on some really good, strong pieces. Uh, but so please give what you can. Help us make the best movie. Help us tell the best truth. Get the truth out in the most entertaining, most accessible way. Go to mysonhunter.com. Give what you can. People have given $10. They've given $100. They've given $1,000. They've given more. So please give what you can. Give $10,000 if you want. And uh, let's get this movie made and make it professional. Moving, moving swiftly along, because we're going to be hearing a lot about, about Hunter Biden over the next uh, uh, little while. Tell us about the Nobel Prize for Literature film. I know that that's well, I mean, caught look, your eye today. It just, you know, look, the Nobel Prize, I mean, ever since, I think probably since they awarded to Obama, it's really, so it's really not worth the paper it's written on. Author of 10 novels, Abdul Razak Gurna, uh, explores the effects of colonialism and the plight of refugees. And it's like, whatever happened to great literature? And uh, I, I, next week, I want to do a thing on the MacArthur Genius Prize. I want to go through that. I mean, that is a, that is a joke now. That is just... I mean, it's like, it reminds me actually of the, of the, of the Academy, uh, the Oscar Academy, where when they wanted to let, uh, you know, make people more diverse, they let documentary filmmakers in who I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of anything. They let filmmakers in who last had a film in 2013. I mean, you know, just, it was just, uh, they were just anything for diversity. And, uh, and it's the same with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They're trying to, to, to please the, the woke gods. Uh, they're trying to make their ranks more diverse and they're diluting. Well, actually, uh, actually, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is a very interesting story. We should, we should do that next week as well, because they should have let more people in over the years and didn't uh, because of, you know, whatever you want to call it, protectionism. You could call it racism. It's not actually racism, but it's protectionism. And uh, it's now go back to bite them. But I want to move on to Anne McElhinney and Philip McAleer versus the city of Santa Monica. Oh, and God. Rick. And can I just say, Philip, everyone I tell about this story, everyone says, yeah, you don't win against the city of Santa Monica. But I know, Philip, you love um, you love to fight. Um, he's from Northern Ireland. You see, this is what happens. So tell us, Philip, what's well, the latest? There's been a development. Is that what you're telling me? There has been a development. Yes, oh, yes, God. there has. And I don't know Actually, this. I'm hearing this for the first time, by the way. So like the great Neville Chamberlain, 
I have in my hand a piece of paper that means not so much peace in our time, more like war in our time. So I went, I wrote to the city of Santa Monica, as, as people will know, we'll see the photographs now, and tripped on a pavement uh, outside the court of Santa Monica, uh, Superior Court of, of, of California. And uh, we, I, I wrote to them and said, please preserve all videos, all security footage of the, of the, around the courthouse. Please preserve all documentation relating to this particular pavement because I noticed that you've ground it down because obviously something's happened there before. I noticed there's been work done on it. Uh, so, and, you know, I demand, j'accuse, and <laughs> as, as you know, we have a lawyer friend who charges, who is a very wealthy man and charges a lot for his uh, legal fees. And I swear to God, I got him this, maybe I mentioned this last week, we got him this wonderful Christmas birthday present, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a quite a special birthday present. But me reading this letter to him was a better present uh, than than that, he. Um, I would, I would, he, I would seriously dispute that. But um, moving right along. No, he, he got mo- much amusement out of it. Actually, and he was very good. He said, "You know, they're wrong." So basically, um, I asked for all video recordings of the area. And this is from, this is from, Leah C. Gerson, Court Counsel of the Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, hundred and eleven North Hill Street, mm-hmm. Los Angeles. So she, she said, you asked for all video. Dear Mr. McAleer, on September 20th, 2021, we, we received your undated written request. Ooh, oh, I didn't date it. I can't believe that. Anyway, seeking preservation and production of records related to an incident in which you allege your wife sustained an injury outside the Santa Monica courthouse. No allege about it, by the way. That's kind of insulting, by the way. Ins- I mean, well, uh, actually, you know, actually, you know, do this you were, the, your letters were forwarded to me for response. Your requests and the court responses are, for, are set forth below. You'd ask for all video recordings of the area for the whole day. The court is not the custodian of the records sought. The video monitoring system of the court are under the control of the sheriff, and any recordings are the custody of the sheriff. To request, you must blah, blah, blah. And then, then he said, even if the court were the custodians, the records sought are exempt from disclosure because they pertain to an anticipated claim or litigation to which a judicial branch entity is a party. California Rules of Court, Rule 10.500, brackets F, brackets 2, close brackets. Um, I have along good legal advice, and this is basically their answer, is we can't give you these records because they pertain to potential litigation. I have it from good, and I asked also from any records, previous claims, any records of damage, any records of repairs, any records of anything to co- connected to this particular part of the thing. And I have a, on good legal advice that that is nonsense. That just because, I mean, the city of Santa Monica gets sued a hundred times a week, I'm sure, for different reasons, you know. So that, that would basically cut close the Freedom of Information Act for the whole city of Santa Monica because everything is, 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 is potential litigation when okay. you think about it. So, so you're I'm saying... To, I'm saying accuse and you're wrong. Uh, Madam Leah C. Gerson, I'm going to write back to say, look, you can't. Er, everything is every every document that you have is 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 is, is part of a potential litigant. You cannot uh, exclude exclude a, exclude certain ones because whatever. You can't get around yeah. the Freedom of Information Act 
which yes. is a legal doc, a legal statutory legal requirement. I have this kind of, I'm just after having a kind of a, you know, like what if, you know, that presentiment or whatever, I kind of, I, can, I almost feel mm. like I can see into the future. I feel like we're going to be like on two Zimmer frames in our 90s and you're going to be saying, the Santa Monica court has just got in touch, you know? Um, and I'll be saying, what? I can't hear you, you know. So um, yes, film. Moving on. I let's just leave that. I I think you and I need to have a talk because I don't think I want you to spend all your free time doing this. Although if this is what you want to have as a hobby, by the way, I want to mention to you, film. By the way, that um, Top Cat is being. He can't. He has to be beside me all the time now. But I'm trying to get him to not jump up on things. And before the next, the next time we have a podcast, I'll have an update because we're seeing the vet this week. But I have to tell you all that the word tripod has been mentioned a number of times in conversations oh. with the vet. So um, Phelan's, one of Phelan's earliest uh, articles written uh, when he was in Northern Ireland was about a tripod. So, I mean, many people a know tripods. A three-legged dog. Three-legged three dogs, dog. three-legged cats. By the way, they get on fine, but I wouldn't like to see Mr. Topcat losing his leg. Mag just taken, look at, look at, look at the photographs of him here because he's lying up beside me here and he's been a very good cat. But Have you, uh, have you explained <laughs> to him that you might be going to Serbia? Well, I don't I haven't broken that news to him yet. So um, hopefully people who come and stay here with the cat will be nice to him. But tell me more, Philem. I want you actually you actually sent me this latest story about crazy California. And I know I know basically what's happened is Gavin Newsom, as many know, people know, he survived the recall and he is smug like nobody like he would win every award for smugness now. In fact, he's the smug man of the of the of the world. Yeah because he's won basically. And he is now bringing in every stupid idea he's ever had in his back burner. Tell us what his latest ideas are, Dylan, please. And just two days, this is from the Daily Mail, California governor signed into law, free menstrual products for girls, mandates that you must study ethnic studies before you graduate from California high school, requires stores to have gender neutral toy areas and bans gas powered lawnmowers and generators. So all these Hispanic gardeners. Can I just say, Philem, can I just say, and for the benefit of the people who are watching me, they're not getting to see Magda. So Magda sort of threw her head back in some kind of resignation there um, because we're just talking about the future and what's going to happen here because they're not going to stop. This stuff just won't stop, you know. Um, it, where do they stop? What happens? You know, what happens? But I think mainly what happens is people like us leave because it just yes. is already too much. Um, sorry, Philem, I'm interrupted you there. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's so much there. I mean, mandating ethnic studies. You know what that means? White people are evil. Yes. Um, you know, uh, banning. I mean, I'm thinking of all these. I mean, people, funny, it was only our next door neighbor who sort of said it. Like, people don't realize in LA, everyone has a gardener, right? And, and we don't realize that most other parts of the world, people don't have gardeners. Right? But there's this massive, and places like our community or Manhattan Beach or the whole of the West Side, and Beverly Hills, like everyone goes off to work in the morning and then thousands of people, mostly Hispanics, come in and work the gar tens of thousands. Like it's massive. Uh, I mean, so many cars on the four or five are pickup trucks with two Hispanics and a load of lawnmower equipment on the back of it. I mean, it's a major, major, it's probably, I'd say gardening is bigger than the movie industry in terms of people employed. And uh, they're now saying that your, your lawnmower- uh, your, The equipment, has, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it can't be gas powered. It yeah. has to be electric powered. And the, the electric lawnmower is twice the price. And sure. they're gonna yes. have, and these guys, they, they don't hang around, they do, 
four yards, five yards a day, yeah. 10 yards a day, sure. they're going to have to carry 30 or 40 batteries as well. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, so it's, it's a tax on the poorest people. 100%. Uh, and um, by the way, when you mentioned ethnic studies, it may, reminded me, and I, I visited our friends, Phil, our dear friends out in Arizona the other day um, yes. in Scottsdale. I was working out there and um, their son was at the table. I hadn't told Magda this story. It's a good one, you know, but they left California because of schools, because of education, because of what happened at the school <clears throat> where their son attended. They're Jewish people. Their son attended a school here. And during break time, they were segregated the children were segregated into ethnic groups uh was one of the things that happened but another thing that happened was the child was uh was accused of not um respecting the fact that he was a child of privilege he, he would not accept that he was a child of privilege and uh, the father of the child said we're russian jews um this boy's grandmother watched her own brother dig a grave and get shot into it so don't talk to me you know this is the kind of privilege this child had been but I, I'm, I'm kind of i'm getting off the point here just to give you a little bit of background about those friends but you know exactly who i'm talking about film but what was really yeah. interesting was they took me out for a meal and the way the three of us went out and their son was at the table he's what age is he now magda what age is he now 14 13 or 14 uh -huh. so at the table what did he have at the table you know because he hadn't fin quite finished he had a, a test the next day what do they call that thing in america they don't call them tests they have this other word for them but anyway he had one of those tests the next day and he had a he was reading the iliad in latin he was reading the iliad in latin and he's 13 uh, or maybe 13 or 14 and i just thought he ain't doing ethnic studies but my yeah. God, that boy is getting the most beautiful education. So he's getting a classical education in a really wonderful school in Scottsdale. Yeah. And it's free. And it's free. He's at a public school um, or a public. What do they call it, Magda? Am I getting that wrong? Charter he's school. at a charter school, but he's going there for free. And he's getting this superior education. When he was here in Los Angeles, that boy, he was attending a, a private school. And I think it was either thirty dollars or $40,000 a year. Um, but he was getting pay, paying that and then having this nonsense and being told that he was a child of privilege when his most of his family were died in the concentration camps across across yeah. Europe. Um, yeah. So this is, you know, this is the kind of people. So um, that was apropos of the, of the fact that Newsom wants to bring in ethnic studies um, here. Phelan, tell us about the recipe, because we're coming to the end of the show. Tell us about this. Re now, it's not a recipe, really. It's you telling us about something you're enjoying eating. Yeah, what do you enjoy uh, eating? I think the Serbians, they called it, you know, they called it something like consolidated raspberries, you know, it's like, guys, can't you give it a romantic name? Like, you know, but it's a very, I, I struck by the beauty of it. I didn't take a side on picture of it, but it's basically, they told me it was egg, vanilla, cream, and then sugar sprinkled along the top. And they all mixed up, all mixed up. And the, the raspberries on, on a plate, and then uh, this, put on top of it, sugar sprinkled over it, and it's caramelized on top. And oh. I'll have to tell you, it was pretty nice. Now. When I get out there, I will have to try and work out exactly how that gets made. Yeah, um, yeah that looks very, very nice. We're coming to the very end of the show. Um, one thing, you know, you guys are, a lot of you write to us, and it's really, really nice now. One person who just wrote to us this week, I'm not going to get into the details of the of the email because it was very, it, it became very personal uh, about a woman sharing a story and we're talking she was talking a lot about um the disaster of covid particularly the disaster of covid for children and um about uh, you know the, her anecdotal experience in her area of the rise in a very bad rise in um covid related mm -hmm. suicides 
by young people who just can't make who this thing is interminable and it's like they can't see an end in sight and they're not getting to go to games and all their life is totally you know has been really ruined anyway we in her correspondence you know she mentioned that um you know her own son was struggling and she and his father had uh, committed suicide in the past and the child was 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 struggling and i it, this has come through on a lot of correspondence from people a lot of bit uh, quite a bit about this worry about suicide i want to share something with everyone and we're going to play it now and it's actually written by a friend of ours film as you know daniel knopf this is a scene from the blacklist uh, about suicide and i i share this with you particularly for anyone who's trying to talk to someone who is suicidal I think, you know, you make the assessment for yourself, but basically this highlights for the person who is suicidal to understand the result, what will happen afterwards when they're gone. And that suicide is an act of terrorism against the people you leave behind. And they are the victims of a terrorist action that you brought about, which you shouldn't have brought about because you didn't realize that you would have you would terrorize them for the rest of their lives and take away their peace of mind. And I think it's an incredibly powerful piece of, um, of footage. And I, I bring it to you as a kind of a gift. And I would say to people, you know your own family best and you know your own friends best. But if this was a helpful tool, use it. And I would also ask you to go and look at it on YouTube. I'll find the link and I'll put the link there and look at the things that people have said as a commentary underneath this incredible mm -hmm. piece yeah. of drama people have said it saved their lives and maybe you know this is a lot of baby about you know the reason for what we do art has a bigger effect than every political speech that was ever made art can change the whole world and people should make more art and people like us should make more art have you ever seen the aftermath of a suicide bomber we're wasting time i have june 29th 2003 I was meeting two associates at the Marouche restaurant in Tel Aviv. As my car was pulling off, a 20-year-old Palestinian named Ghazi Safar entered the restaurant and detonated a vest wired with C4. The shockwave knocked me flat. You could tell where Safar was standing when the vest blew. It was like a perfect circle of death. There was almost nothing left of the people closest to him. 17 dead. 46 injured, blown to pieces. The closer they were to the bomber, the more horrific the effect. That's every suicide. Every single one. An act of terror perpetrated against everyone who's ever known you, everyone who's ever loved you, the people closest to you, the ones who cherish you, are the ones who suffer the most pain the most damage. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to people who love you? I have no choice. There's always a choice. Here ended the lesson from Anne McElhenney. <laughs>